0: 1 John chapter 4 I'll begin reading from verse 7 1 John chapter 4 Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son To be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, as you can see, brethren, we are still in this extended passage of Scripture in the epistle of John that deals with the subject of love as proof that we are the children of God. And John had taken a break between chapter 4, verse 1, up to verse 6, when he was dealing with the whole subject of testing the spirits in other words not believing everything we hear it doesn't matter who it is who is teaching us we ought to make sure that whatever the teaching is is tested by scripture and then he went back to the subject of love and we've thus far noticed that in his recommencement of the subject of love, John, first of all, urges us to love. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. So he's not simply telling us that it is a test for salvation. He's, in fact, urging us to love others. And then he's given us the reason why. And it is in the reason that we find that it is a test of our salvation. He says there, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That's where we see what we are really dealing with in this matter. And it is a test or a proof of our salvation. But now, John has begun to point to God himself as an example of love. And that's what we began to see last time. We saw that he is an example of love in the way in which he sent his Son, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of saving us from sin. Or, as he puts it here, giving us life. He says there, he sent his only son into the world, verse 9, so that we might live through him. That is already something of God showing his love for us. And there we see it in two senses. First of all, it is the, the, the sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. God becoming man. That humiliation was a major sacrifice because it is the creator becoming a creature. The creator taking on himself the form of a creature becoming a servant. He who is above the law coming under the law and consequently living a life of obedience, the way in which we ought to live a life of obedience. But also it is in terms of the purpose why he was undergoing this humiliation. And it is clearly because he loves us. He wants us to go from death to life. He wants us to have eternal life. Well, today, we are moving beyond the sending of His Son. We we will talk about it briefly, but we are moving beyond the sending of the Son as an example of God's love, and we are now looking at the atonement that He made for our sins. So let's read again verse 10. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. It begins more or less the same way in which verse 9 began. Remember how verse 9 began? It began with these words, in this the love of God was made manifest. Well, he's basically repeating that. He says in verse 10, in this is love. Again, basically the same thing. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I've said to you before many times, and I want to say it again, that when you read John's writings, you sometimes feel as if he's going in a circle over and over and over again. And yet, if you are a careful student, what you will notice is that each time John makes that circle, he adds something else. So in going the circle, he's obviously reminding us of what he has just said, but he is adding that little extra. And often, that little extra is adding is what he wants you to concentrate on this time Around, So what we'll do is, we will first of all, uh, look at clearly what we have just been already looking at, and then spend a little more time on that little extra. And to start with, the point that he is making is that we make a grave mistake. We make a serious blunder when we make our love for God to be the model of love. That is a grave mistake. John points this out when he says at the beginning of that verse, in this is love, not that we have loved God. He would have simply said, in this is love, not that we have loved one another or we have loved others. But he deliberately goes to the highest level of love. The highest possible level of love in human hearts. And that is religious affections. Religious affections. And what he says is that even that is woefully deficient. It is woefully deficient. Now why do I say so? That the highest level of love for human, from human beings should be our love for God. Well, first of all, it is simply that it is God who has made us. We, are, we owe Him our very lives to begin with. So clearly, if there was anybody we ought to love, it is God. But secondly, he is the one who has looked after us up to this very moment. The very fact that you are sitting in this building this morning, or those that will obviously be listening through the internet and so on, wherever they are, the point that they are able to listen to this message is because God has spared their lives. He has fed them. He has kept fatal accidents away from them. He has kept diseases from taking them from this life into the next. It's not our cleverness. We are absolutely dependent on this God. So you would obviously say, surely in the light of that, we ought to love a God such as this. And then for those of us who are Christians, there is a further motivation, and it is what we'll be looking at in a few moments. And it is this, that he has saved us from sin through the sacrifice of his own son. Surely in the light of that, our love for God should surpass our love for anything else and for anybody else on this planet. And so John deliberately goes there and he plucks the highest possible level of love and he says, even there, that's not the place we should look. We fail even there. And friends, He is right. He is right. Just think of how many times you and I know that it is now time to pray. Either because it is in the morning, it's time to talk to the Lord. Or because it is the Lord's day, it's time to go and join others to worship this God who has made me to thank this God who has looked after me, and so on and so forth. Remember how often we struggle? How we compete in this matter? That we prefer everything else. We prefer chatting with friends on the phone, visiting Facebook or, or visiting a friend across the street than spending time with this God in his word and prayer. So if we're going to judge love by our love for God, it's a little embarrassing. And especially when it comes to tangible sacrifice, money, You know how we often steal the Lord's tithe. You know how we often are stingy with finances to do with the Lord's work and the Lord's cause. Those moments in our hearts when we are going, I should give. No, 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 no. No, no, I should. No, no. Okay, just half. We know that. We go through that. So surely, if we were going to say, that is love, which is a model of love, well, you and I know we have something which is half-baked. And so John says, no, 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 don't go there. Don't look at human love for God. Although it ought to be the highest, it fell." to pass the test. But I can go further and say that even that love that is still there by which we say to God, Lord, I know I don't love you as I ought, but at the same time I acknowledge I love you Lord. that love is actually not from us. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts. So it's still His love that is radiating through us back to Himself. So, stop looking at your love for others, And even more so, stop looking at your love for God as the model of true love. And let's face it, that's the way we often think, don't we? When we are challenged about loving, we sort of say, okay, you know, the way in which I love God whom I don't see, That's the way I should now love others whom I see. And in a sense, that's correct. But John is saying, that's not where you go for model love. Instead, you ought to look at God's love for us. Back to our text. God's love for us. He says in this is love, not that we have loved God, uh -uh, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We already looked at God loving us. And God sending his only son into the world that we might live through him. We've already looked at that. We have seen what price he paid in that incarnation. That he should have sent his son to come into this world as a creature. To come into this world in humiliation. To come into this world to suffer. To come into this world to be hunted like a wild animal right from his birth. To be born in abject poverty. Born in a cow shed. And I often feel that those Christmas cards do us a big disfavor when they show us a cow shed that is cleaner than our very sitting rooms. It was a real cow shed. Try visiting one today. And try having a meal in that cow shed, the stench in your nostrils, the flies that you have to try and keep away from you. And to imagine that the creator of the universe should have allowed himself to be Born in that place and that his baby's crib should have been the eating trough of the animals themselves that is in itself sacrifice and that he should have run away for dear life's sake into Egypt for a season and then even in coming back from there that he should have continued at the mercy, humanly speaking, of the leaders of Israel, of the leaders of the Roman Empire. All that we have gone through, it was indeed humiliating and it was suffering. He came into a fallen world. He lived among sinners and consequently was as it were smelling the stench of sin all around him at a moral level. God allowed that for the purpose of saving us from eternal petition, eternal doom to save us. From a humiliation that was going to last forever and ever. John is saying that's where we should look. If we want to see what love is, that's where we should look. Because he climbed down from the highest pinnacle of glory and came into the depths of creation, came into the depths. Of humiliation came into the depths of suffering, came into the depths of being surrounded by moral degradation. That's love, friends. That's love, and it is already proven, it's in history. Jesus Christ came, so we're not philosophizing here, it's there in history, the Son of God came into this world. John begins this epistle by saying to us that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, verse 3, we proclaim to you and it is the Son, Jesus Christ. We've seen all that two weeks ago. But what I want us to do is to go one step further because John goes one step further. And this time he tells us that this giving was in terms of a propitiation for our sin. Let's read that text again. A propitiation for our sin. 1 John chapter 5, rather chapter 4, and verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now friends, there are certain words in the Bible that we need to learn. We need to know what they mean. They are essential to Christianity. Words, for instance, like sin, S-I-N. We need to know what that means. Words like redemption. We need to know what they mean. Words like justification, we need to know what they mean. They are in the Bible, and they are repeated quite a few times at critical points. Words like repentance, words like faith, we need to know what they mean, because our very future well-being hangs on words like that. Well, this word propitiation is one of them. And if you are an individual who has a mind that wants to have a challenge, I would urge you to take note of that word. Get home and do whatever you do to study words. Pull out an, an, a regular dictionary. If you can find a Bible dictionary, pull it out. In today's world, you even can just Google, type it there, propitiation, and do search or enter or whatever it is you normally press and read about his word. It's not only John who uses it. You find individuals like Paul. If we quickly go back to Romans and chapter 3, we find Paul also using it. Romans chapter 3. And I will read from verse 23. I want you to notice the way Paul also uses it. It is clearly a word that is meant to capture something of our hope, our solid hope as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning to read from verse 23 because we are familiar with that verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. There it is, one word that I've already used. By his grace, I should have mentioned that. That's another word you need to learn, grace. Through the redemption, that's a word I already told you you needed to learn. That is in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's another word that I already gave you which you need to learn. This word propitiation, what does it mean? I'll summarize it for you. Basically, to propitiate is to offer a sacrifice for the purpose of appeasing the wrath of a person you have offended. Let me say that again. To propitiate means to offer a sacrifice for the purpose of appeasing. Notice the word I'm using there. Appeasing. Removing the wrath or the anger or the coming punishment of a person that you have offended. That's what we're being told here. That God sent his son to be the propitiation. In other words, to be the sacrifice. So, let's use an ordinary example. You we driving under the influence of alcohol, which you shouldn't be. But let's assume that was the case. You had gone for your company, end of year party, and instead of declaring that you don't drink, you compromised and drank and drank and drank. And then as you were leaving your premises in your car, You bumped into your general manager's car, the chief executive. And as a result, his vehicle went into the ditch and got terribly damaged. You know the consequences of that. They are too grim to even think about. You go to your manager and simply say, I'm sorry. Obviously, you know what you should try and do. And it is this. To fix that car. But you also know that panel beating doesn't quite bring back the car as it was before. You know that. So what you decide to do is to replace that car. And it just so happened that a few days ago, your uncle had given you money for some project had promised you before. And that project was perhaps to, to buy a house. You know exactly what you're going to do. In order to appease your boss, you won't just go and say, I am sorry. You will say, sir, if you go to this place, there is a brand new car to replace this one. I'm really sorry. You do something, you sacrifice something to appease that wrath. And it is that sacrifice that is referred to as a propitiation. It is a sacrifice meant to put away a punishment, a wrath that you deserve. And friends, that was the Christian understanding of what happened on the cross. It was not just a miscarriage of justice where the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, out of malice, got rid of the Lord Jesus Christ and in court, in agreement with the leaders of, of, of the Roman Empire, consequently rushed Jesus onto the cross. That's one side of the story. But God planned it. It was in line with God's purpose. And it was so that when Jesus gets onto that cross, he would set aside his own righteousness, he would take upon himself our liability, our sins, and consequently the wrath that ought to have befallen us ends up falling upon Jesus Christ. So that God's justice is still satisfied. And he can now bring us into heaven. Jesus takes our place, dies our death, drinks in our hell on our behalf. That's what Calvary is all about. And that's what John is drawing our attention to here. When he says, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He drinks in our punishment on our behalf. And therefore, God remains just. Our sins are punished. Not on our heads. We deserve to drink in hell forever. But he drinks it in on our behalf. He suffers in our place. And that's what Paul was referring to in the passage we read earlier on when he said... In Romans 3 verse 25. That we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward. So it was an act of God. He put him forward on the cross. As a propitiation by his blood. And blood simply means death. By his death to be received by faith. Listen to this. This was to show God's righteousness. In other words, God's justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness or his justice at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can now pardon sinners. He can now declare sinners righteous. Not on the basis of their own righteousness, no. But on the basis of his own son's righteousness and his own son taking our place. I've used this illustration before and I'll use it again, that in warfare, there are what are called heat-seeking missiles. They are very good for bringing down aeroplanes. Because it doesn't matter how the aeroplane tries to run away from the missile the missile follows that aeroplane. And all it is following is the heat coming out of the aeroplane's engine. That's what it's doing. So as the plane goes down, the missile follows it. It goes up, it follows it. It turns around, it still follows it. And because it's faster than the aeroplane, it finally catches up with it and poof! The plane is gone in mid-air. Well, Warfare being what it is, the other sides, those who make jet planes for battle have found another solution. And all they do is within the engine of the plane, they release that which has the same heat that was coming out of that engine. And then they switch off the engine of the plane. And as that which is released is going down, the heat-seeking missile hits into it and explodes. And the guy switches on his engine again and is gone. That's a perfect picture of what we're dealing with here. We are the ones who deserve the wrath of God. We are the ones who are producing that heat of sin. We are the ones who ought therefore to sink deeper than the grave into the flames of hell. We deserve the wrath of God. What God does is He gives His only begotten Son, His only one his innocent one, his righteous one, who sets aside his righteousness and then takes on that heat upon himself that he has not produced, that heat of sin. And therefore the wrath of God that ought to destroy us and sink us into hell comes on to him and explodes on his person. Hence his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the innocent one, the righteous one? And clearly it is because of his love. Because of his love. But what makes this love the highest level is because the one doing this is the offended party. The offended party. You know, if, let's suppose, it was now within the legal world, and you cause an offense, like breaking the windows of a judge and it just so happens that when the case is brought to the judge the judge looks at it the first thing he does is to declare interest he says no, 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 I won't handle this case because if he handles that case you're probably going to be hanged for breaking windows that's what they do they declare interest But this is more than God declaring interest. This is God paying the price on behalf of the offender who has offended him. Now friends, that should blow our minds. Maybe if it was an angel who was doing this. But this is the one against whom we have sinned, we have continued to sin, and even as you are sitting here, you are probably still sinning against him. And your record in heaven consists nothing but wickedness and sin and everything vile and filthy in God's nostrils. And then what does it do? He takes the best in heaven, his own son, and he brings him between you in that jet and his death missile. And it hits into him, and he explodes. And you are set free. You go free. And it wasn't an accident. It's not you who produced it. It was God himself who has done all that for those that have offended them. Now, my friend, if you don't think that's love, you need to go for psychiatric treatment. Bottom line, that's love. That's love. There's no way on earth, in heaven, under the earth, for all eternity, there's no way where you're going to find anything like this. This is love, says John. In this is love. So friends, As John repeats himself here, he is emphasizing that last part. Yes, there was love in the sending of his son into this world. There was love in the purpose for which he was doing it. There was love in all that. But hey, that's nothing but the moon shining in our eyes. When we now look at Calvary, we are seeing love like the sun in all its glory, in its noonday strength. It's blinding our eyes when we look at it. Indeed, this is love. Now, what this means is, we ought to stop looking for love in all the wrong places. Our own human love is a sham. That's what it is. It is a sham. Go, you, you don't go to human beings and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking for, for an example of love. That's, that's compromise. That's, that's, that's dusk. It's, it's dawn. It's, it's, it's evening. It's, it's, it's not love shining in its brilliance. True love has been displayed through the cross through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where true love has been. As the hymn writer so well puts it, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest, the For a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old ragged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. Why? For the dear Lamb of God left his glory, his glory, His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. And finally in that old ragged cross stained with blood so divine a wondrous beauty I see for it was on that old cross Jesus suffered. It was on that old cross Jesus died to pardon and sanctify. That's where we should look when we want to see love. Not to your husband, not to your wife, not to your girlfriend, not to your boyfriend, not even to church members, not even to your church pastor. Look at God and look at and let me close by saying this that the reason why we are learning this from John is not so much that we should admire God but rather that we should emulate emulate look at the next two verses and we'll look at them next time verse 11 and 12 Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the challenge that's coming. When you've gazed at Calvary and you've gone, wow, God taps you on the shoulder and says, that's what I want you to emulate. That's the way I want you to live among believers. Oh may God help us to emanate his love. Amen.